Hi everyone, it's Harmony here. Today we're interviewing Andrew Hillam. He has been practicing yoga since 1994. He's a certified teacher from the KPJAYI or Sharat Joyce's Institute in Mysore, India. He's also the director at Joyce Yoga in Sanitas and is a very close friend of ours and an excellent Ashtanga yoga teacher. He also has a particular interest in chanting Sanskrit and chanting Sanskrit mantras and studies with a Vedic chanting teacher. He is a wonderful resource when it comes to chanting and we're about to hear more about it. But just so you know, there's been a lot of research done lately on chanting mantras, uh, even just positive words and phrases, but particularly the Sanskrit mantras have been shown to stimulate different parts of the brain as you are reciting them. And this cultivates more peace of mind and these positive vibrations start to eliminate negative uh, patterns of thinking in our mind. And also it's been shown to help calm the nervous system, decrease heart rate, uh, so chanting mantras can be very powerful. Even just 10 minutes a day has been shown to decrease anxiety and symptoms of depression within people who have been having these experiences. So I would encourage you to uh, integrate chanting into your regular Ashtanga yoga practice. And if you'd like to join me, I'm going to be starting mantra monday back up i will be chanting on monday mornings starting tomorrow november 16th it will be in the mornings for me so at 5 30 a.m pacific time or that is 8 30 a.m eastern time maybe it's in the afternoon if you live in europe but i'll be chanting shanti mantras for you we'll go through them each monday and you're welcome to join me live on instagram and head on over to my website, harmonyslater.com backslash chanting to get your free PDF uh, Shanti Mantra booklet. It's a collection of the different Shanti Mantras that I will be chanting on the Mondays. And so head on over, harmonyslater.com backslash chanting. You can download your copy of the Shanti Mantra booklet there and join me on Monday mornings for a little bit of Sanskrit chanting. And now I will leave you to listen to our interview. Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to Finding Harmony. I'm Harmony Slater and today I'm here with Russell Case. This is me faking enthusiasm. And we are joined by our guest today, Andrew Hillam. Hi, Andrew. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm ex actually extremely enthusiastic to make up for Russell's lack of enthusiasm. Thank you. It's so nice to have someone who's enthusiastic today. <laughs> well, we um, it is actually really a pleasure just to be able to spend time with you. We are all old friends here. Um, I can think of a number of different words to call you, but I, w I wonder how would, how would you like to be introduced? How would you introduce yourself? Um, if I introduce myself, I usually just say, hi, I'm Andrew. 
I don't really get into any of, any of the other stuff, you know. <laughs> this is me. Try and work it out. Okay. Okay. Well, this is Andrew. Andrew. Um, Where did you guys meet? You met in Mysore, India, right? We did. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I know I met you in Mysore, India as well. Yeah, yeah we met in 2000. And I met Russell in 2005, um, maybe sept- September, October, November, something like that. Around the end of 2005, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I met you maybe the next year. Uh, uh, I didn't go back again till. No, when did I go back? Maybe 2007? 2007. 2007. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And you were living in that really nice apartment in Srivara. Well, Shri actually. Manor. Yeah, that's a nice Yeah, one. we um, had that place upstairs the kids were there so um we were the kids were quite young so we're a bit nervous about um you know i i'd previously been in just little places that um and the first trip was at post office house that was quite um bare bones and so when we i think narayana was six months old so we were just concerned that he would be up off the floor right he was six months in 2000 and wait a second he was no he was he was 16 months i think something okay (laughs) he was older like like just just walking and kind of running starting to run around a bit yeah we just wanted a sort of a safe place a bit away from everything yeah yeah how was how was that how did you like having your kids in in mysore with you was it did it feel easy or hard felt easy to me. And one of the things I love about um, the Indian culture is that their their love of children and they treat children um, in a different way. And I mean, like some other cultures of this, you know, many other cultures are the same, but um, they really incorporate, include the children and everything. They don't sort of, if they go out, the kids are there. If they go out to dinner, the kids are there. If they're doing things, if they go to the temple, the kids are with them, just always there. You know, mm-hmm. so the kids are constant companions, and uh, um, I guess the culture I grew up in. My parents were a very close family, but you know, we would there would be dinner parties for adults, and the kids would be shuffled off somewhere else. Um, that was in L.A., right? Or no, uh, Encinitas, no, no, I'm just from? I'm from Australia. <laughs> You're not, as you know. <laughs> You're from Adelaide, is that right? Yeah, I'm from Adelaide. So, uh-huh. yeah, I really noticed that when I had Jediah in India when he was small too. It's like in North America, people aren't like rude, but sometimes you know, if kids are crying in a restaurant or fussing, people kind of like give you the side eye a bit, and um, especially like even on the airplane, people be people would actually be kind of mean on the airplane sometimes. Right. If kids are, I mean, if kids are fussing in India, then you'll have many people coming over wanting to pick them up and, you know, play with them to try and, um, encourage them and make them feel better. So the, the waiters and the restaurant staff would, if, if the kids were there, would want to come out and they want to pick them up and take them into the kitchen and show them around and, you know, carry them around the restaurant and all that sort of stuff. So the kids really, um, their experience, and they say the same when I talk to them now, was a really good one in that they felt um, very much a part of everything. And actually, Narayana even says he feels like India is home in a way. 
So, um, yeah, even now, and he says, he says things all the time. This reminds me of India. This smell reminds me of India or this, this feeling reminds me of India. And, uh, yeah, so it made a very profound, had a very profound effect on both of them. You sent me a a video once that that just kind of overwhelmed me, and I I had never seen this before. But but it was it was Narayana was in the back of your car, and he was describing Brahma, and he his his eyes were wide open, and he was completely almost ecstatic as he was describing what Brahma was. I was he like was he like five years old at that time? Yeah, probably. explaining what is brahman and uh we did we we actually did a um a course and it was about uh doing puja um which is the indian sort of ritual worship sort of thing and it was a bit of indian philosophy and so they asked all the kids just to make a video about something and so he decided to do that so um yeah yeah, that was nice. That's so, it's so amazing to like expose your children, I think, to other cultures and other practices at a young age. It's, it's a real um, privilege actually to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, they've also traveled to um, Hong Kong. They've been to Australia many times back to Australia and they've been to um you know, we took them to Singapore, Sri Lanka. I've taken them around India when they got a little bit older to some different places in India. Um, they love to travel. They love other cultures. Now Narayana's learning. Uh, he's learned Spanish um, at school. Now he's learning Mandarin. He wants to learn after Mandarin. He wants to learn more languages. Um, Anjana is teaching himself Russian. So wow. I've kind of embraced... Um, different all those experiences i think have led them to look outwards a lot but at the same but at the same time like there was something incredibly embodied about that video of something of someone who who was lit up not just you know repeating words but he was he was completely euphoric describing brahman and and i and i wonder if can you just is there just something about him that is like that? Because I just would suggest that's a little bit different from other other kids I've I've met. I don't know. I think he's um, he's a very extremely sensitive person. Um, he's also, I've made him cry. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> I have. When I say sensitive, I don't mean sensitive in terms of being easily hurt. I mean sensitive in really picking up on what's going on around him. He's very um, sharp in that way. So um, he's he really picks up on people's emotions and those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, um, they're both, I mean, they're different, but um, they're also, um, uh, I think they've we've spent a lot of time together, you know, it's we're very family oriented. We do everything together, and they're around people. They've had lots of experiences with people. I think that kind of has influenced that. It's very very real kind of um, experiences. There's, they're not really into video games and stuff like that, you know. Um, well, I, I've played a lot of video games with them. 
They do that tank game for like hundreds of hours. Uh, they were really into that. Um, was that when you were growing up in Adelaide, was it, was it, um, was that very different for you? Were, were you exposed to uh, many different kinds of cultures or was it maybe more uh, uh, homogenous homogenous yeah no Adelaide especially where I grew up is quite homogenous and uh, I um, but I did when I started practicing yoga um, I became interested in yoga philosophy and I started reading um, Krishnamurti Ramana Maharshi yoga sutras um, those kind of Bhagavad Gita those kind of texts and so then when I went first went to India, I was really, as soon as I got there, I just was like, wow, this place is exactly, um, I really get it. I really like it here. I really get or like the people. Um, it's very easy to be there. And uh, even though my, I guess, I was very introverted when I, when I was younger, um, I was in my own head a lot, I think. Uh, but that was, um, you know, it, yeah, it was fairly homogeneous. So I didn't have much exposure to outside cultures. Although I did go to Canada when I was um, 15. <laughs> Canada's basically Australia, but colder. <laughs> and spent a year in London, Ontario, yeah. which is on the Thames, which, you know, that was. Um, yeah. I was like, am I in England or am I in Australia? I mean, in in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have a I have a memory of you uh, of of shopping with you down on the Gokulam High Street, and there's a it's a it's an image of you kind of rifling through different vegetables and looking at them and peering at them. And there's a kind of I remember it with such a like a quiet intensity about the way that you that you looked. And you did seem so very much at home, as as you know you're uh, you're dressed appropriately in, in in the in the way that you would in India, and I, I like in a dhoti. Well, in a, a longi and a button up shirt, and yeah. and you know you just very you just seem very much at home in India. And I'm I also I wondered did you did you start cooking when you were in India, or, or was that something that you were doing? at home first i'd always been interested in cooking basically i'd since i moved out of home i always cooked my own food and i was interested in cooking my own food i was a vegetarian so you know especially when you're a vegetarian eating out gets less and less fun well, why, so, were you, why were you vegetarian when you moved out of your parents uh, i don't know i just something made me feel like it was the right thing to do i don't know i just uh had a few friends that were vegetarians it seemed like um, a good thing to do and uh, for, for health reasons as well as I felt that you know maybe eating meat was not good for so good for the environment and and I didn't want to be involved in the whole process of especially the factory farms and everything so I kind of moved away from that mm -hmm. um, sounds like you were in college <laughs> it was it was around that time for sure and, uh, you know, I cooked a lot for myself. So when I went to India, I did learn to cook Indian food. And the beautiful thing about South India is that if you're a vegetarian, there's a lot of variety that's healthy. 
Um, so I just got into learning all those kind of things like Idli's doses, sambar, you know, chutney, everything. But you're also an excellent chef. And I would, I would argue one of the finest chefs that I've actually had the pleasure to, to eat from in, in India. Where does that come from that you would like then pursue food, but then do it so excellently? I mean, was you, were you excellent teaching, like cooking Italian in Adelaide? Like, what was that? Well, who was teaching you to cook? I just learned by, you just learn by, you know, doing it and doing it over and over again and sort of refining what you're doing, being, I guess, just being interested in it. So um, I wanted to reproduce those same kind of, there's nothing worse than going back to Australia after eating light, fluffy idlis and then making heavy, rubbery idlis. And <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's, it doesn't feel good. So you've got to work it out. You've got to work out how do I make them like that? And uh, I discovered that you have to use this particular kind of rice. Um, you can't just use any rice. Right. You have to use idli rice. <laughs> things like that, simple things, you know, that the, the Indian, uh, my Indian friends forgot to tell me because they make assumptions. You know, right. So anyway, you keep refining and, and asking people, so how do you get this flavor or that flavor? And then, you know, basically I wanted to eat food when I was here like this, that it was as good as the food that I could get in India. So um, it, it didn't awful. take a lot of work. It was just so much better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> it, I'm sorry. You said it didn't take a lot of work. You said. Uh, not really. I just, cooking's always been something that came fairly and um, felt fairly natural to me. So, you, you know, it's, it's what's something that you, that you said was really interesting there. My, my, um, I used to watch American Idol with my, with my stepfather. We used to watch it obsessively and he's a professional singer and, um, was saying in, in a, a number of, of very famous bands throughout, throughout Texas for 30, 40 years. And what I was, struck me was how emotional he would get when he would hear something that wasn't good. And it was very, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like it. And that's how you know it's not good. But it also it really upset him. And it, and in turn, I think Harmony has mentioned this about me, when I see a painting that I really don't like, um, I, I get nauseous. I get a little mm. upset, and I wonder if that was if that was part of it with with cooking. Like you, there was an emotional response to it not being good and it needing to be better, and it wouldn't and you wouldn't feel right unless it was better. I don't know. I'm <laughs> I'm kind of like um, I'm I'm a little bit more detached than that. I just will do it again and just keep working at it, you know, until it, until it gets there. Um, I think you're a bit of a perfectionist though, right? I'm not sure about that either. <laughs> well, well, that's somewhat, that's for you guys to say, maybe. I'm not. Right. You, you sort of treated, <laughs> as I understand that you, you have a, a career in music, like you studied the classical guitar. Is a that past right? life, a past, past, a past a, life in music. Is that right? 
Yeah, I studied um, classical guitar. And the, uh, I would, I think you, I would imagine that you, you'd sort of approached it the same way that you, you just kept trying it and trying it until it got better and better until well, it got had, to a place where you, you could, you could stand it. Yeah. I had, <laughs> I had a, I had a teacher, you know, <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> and uh, I went to university and studied. Um, I went to the conservatorium in Adelaide, but uh, I was never a great classical guitarist. It was something I really loved. Um, I worked really hard at it, but uh, I, you know, I was good. But um, how are you not great? Uh, I was inconsistent, I'd say. That's all. Um, you, I think in life um, there are things that we do. Well, this is my experience anyway. That there are things that we do where we um, something when you find the right thing, it'll become. It starts to flow very easily. So I have the ability to, I had the ability to work very hard and I worked very hard and there were times when that flowed and other times when it didn't flow so well. But, um, I'd say more, you know, that was, I did that for 15 years and then I became interested in yoga. I'd actually, um, after playing the guitar for a long time, it actually sort of developed some injuries in my back and my hip from the, you have to sit in a very kind of awkward position, you know, for many different instruments actually. And when you spend hours a day, do it playing, you know, many musicians that I've known have had um, injuries and long-term kind of health effects. Mm -hmm. Um, So it became uncomfortable actually to play and it was it was a little frustrating but um when i got into yoga and i started to ch- uh, chant and use my voice that felt very natural and very easy and actually the position that's best to chant in is the same position that's best to meditate in it's the same position that you aspire to be able to achieve in yoga practice which is you know really good it's perfect alignment. So um, the chanting then became something that really fulfilled that, um, you know, desire for expression through music or sound. And the other layer of it was um, the devotional layer on top of or as part of the chanting. So um, actually, when in about 2000 and or maybe around 2000, right before I went to India, I had an Indian friend from Coimbatore, which is in Tamil Nadu, and he gave me a, a, a tape, <laughs> a cassette tape with um, MS Subalakshmi chanting the Mahaganesha Pancharatna Stotram and uh, Hanuman Chalisa and a few other. Um, works and I listened to those and I was like oh man this is amazing I listened to it all the time it just grabbed me straight away but when I started chanting being able to use my voice not having to use an instrument so you become the instrument is totally within you 
that's a, that for me that was a really different experience. And again, the, the devotional aspect of chanting, um, the meditative aspect. The it's not a, it's not the other thing that came from that also is that it's not a performance. It's not about some, it's not something you do for others. Where I, whereas when I was playing classical guitar, it was you know I was performing a lot. So it's all about the perfection of performing and um, trying to create this perfect um, experience for other people. It's a lot of, so it can, that can be quite stressful too. So this chanting was a different, a different thing and it's, and I'm still doing it. So I, I really love that. Um, the way you explain that, cause I, I feel like I can relate to that so much with, you know, similar almost with dancing, even though you're not using an instrument, your body is your instrument. But from like a dancer's perspective, your body is almost like a separate thing from you because it is looked at like an instrument that you're using mm. to create a certain effect or a certain um, look, a certain feeling for other people. And then again, there's that performing, um, that performative aspect to it that you know your bias or this tool that you're using to create this thing to be enjoyed by other people and then when I moved you know stopped dancing and moved into the yoga asana it was that all that focus that was external and seeing your body as a separate thing all of a sudden pulled inside and then it was like I became embodied and my body was no longer like a separate tool it was like a part of me and that then the asana um, could be, was an expression of like gratitude, of love, of devotion, of all those, you know, inner feelings ra- that I had for, you know, life, for, you know, something greater than myself, whatever you want to call Brahman, right, or, or God. And, um, and it became sort of this holistic experience and um, I just loved how you you spoke about the chanting and and that also being something that was turning the focus inward and an expression of that devotion and and even though it's the voice is the instrument it's it sounded like it's helping to integrate more like with your mind so that it becomes like a body um, mind, voice, sound, like vibration, like this connecting to something higher than yourself. And it's really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, the expression of, um, of Brahman or of the Purusha or of God or whatever you want to call it. If, you know, if they, if we use the, um, the mantra Om, it's an ex- that's an expression of vibration, and vibration is the closest thing we have to um, when the effect that purusha or soul has when it comes into close contact with prakriti or nature. So it's only the the juxtaposition they call it sanyoga in in uh, Indian philosophy and Sankhya philosophy is that when those two come together, Prakriti actually um, becomes disturbed. So the first, very first part of that process is vibration. When um, I remember uh, reading for the first time uh, um, 
uh, Ramana Maharshi talking about meditating and following, asking the question, who am I, and following that back, that where does that question arise from in the mind? Where, Where does it first start? And he talks about following it back to the spiritual heart, Mm-hmm. And so within the heart is this, and it's described in the Vedas in many different passages, it talks about this small lotus in the heart, and inside is that akasha. The akasha is this expanse, this um, vast expanse. It's also called anantya. In the Yoga Sutras commentaries, they talk about that is that this um, anantya. And so within that um space in the heart they say there is this ether which is um, full of bliss Mm. and so this is where sound arrives from this is arises from this is where mantra arises from so when we're actually chanting mantra it's rising from that place from that spiritual heart Um, so it's a this is the why mantra is so important and then in uh, i think in uh, the it's the sutra the second sutra on asana where he says prayatna shaitilya ananta samapatibhyam that ananta is the i just referred to that as when they he talks about um samapatihi so transforming your mind into anantya or ananta but anantya is the same. It's this akasha, it's this endlessness, it's the ether, the same as the ether that's in the spiritual heart. So we're trying, during asana, in order to get stira and sukha, one of the things we have to do is try and transform our mind into that same kind of um, endless open openness um, that is as close as we can get to the source, uh, the spiritual source that comes from within us. Um, and so there's a lot of power. And I think when I first started chanting, and in Sanskrit, when I first started chanting, although I didn't know any of this philosophy, there was some intuition that this is different. <laughs> yeah. Can, can, yeah. I ask, can I ask again, because I just want to make sure I'm following that, that, um, Sound is uh, the manifestation of prakriti and purusha rubbing together. Well, I'm s- what I'm said. saying is prakriti stays in a completely balanced state. The three gunas, there is no. Potentially, also mentions this in the just before that in the second chapter, he talks about this that there is a state of prakriti. Uh, he calls it Arlingo, without a mark. It has no form. It has no, there's no form. And Prakriti stays in that balanced state, completely undisturbed. There's nothing, there's no um, manifestation until it become, until it comes into contact with Purusha. So <laughs> Prakriti doesn't have any of, has, doesn't have its own um, consciousness. Pra- Prakriti doesn't have consciousness. When consciousness comes into contact with it, it causes a disturbance in Prakriti and it causes it to evolve. So the first part of that um, process is like this vibration 
can call it vibration. And the, so the first part of Ohm represents that first um, first disturbance where vibration first starts. And the last part of Ohm, so the middle part of Ohm is where it's, it's become manifest. The last part of Ohm is where it returns to that um, original original state. Um, so this idea of mantra, there's a lot of philosophy behind it. There's a lot of idea behind it, but there's also just the intuitive experience of mantra um, and uh, trying to, you know, when we use mantra, we're, ex we're having a, a different experience. I mean, we can have this in all forms, in, in everything, in an all sort of expression. But I, for me, that um, that chanting sort of really connected me, um, really connected me to that that sense of where is it coming from. And I think the also, you know, I was I I loved the those words of uh, of Ramana Maharshi about uh, following that following that question who am i back to the and feeling it rising from the center of the heart when you get very when you get very sensitive and when you um, experience the subtlety of where it's coming from where it rises from i think that's in incredible that after leaving the guitar and coming to yoga with i think um um, a science uh, interlude that <laughs> you became an immunologist. Um, that that the the gap there where you you go back to yoga and then while practicing asana for for whatever reason I'd like to find out why, but you found a, a space there to truly completely understand sound, which is to say existence. And that's at the heart of what was happening with, with music. I mean, to paraphrase, say, Miles Davis, someone who says that music is, is actually the space between notes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, we have experiences where we're perhaps we're being drawn to something for a reason. You know, I was always drawn to music. Um, there was a lot of music in my family. Um, I loved music. I really loved classical music. And um, I listened to a lot of um, modern music, jazz, pop, all sorts of different genres. I actually played in a band at one stage when I was younger. But I got drawn back to classical music. And I think for me it was the realization when I started chanting and got really into the chanting in Sanskrit that um, – perhaps this is what I'd been trying to find um, or it, it is what I'd been trying to find. And I'd been trying to find it through different avenues that were available to me at the time. I didn't have access. I'd never heard that, that music before. So I was, you know, I was trying to experience it through these other forms. And then when I came to this form, I realized, Oh, this is the one. I mean, uh, the way I operate, Things take time, so it didn't. It wasn't like a, a lightning strike, but it was something that I knew was right, something that I 
knew I should be doing. So I just kept doing it. And, uh, um, that sort of understanding ended up, um, coming, you know, forming over a long period of time over the, from, through the experience of doing it. Can you, um, explain, uh, like, or tell us like in your experience, because you have your own, you know, daily ritual of chanting and are very immersed in Sanskrit and in all these mantras. What um, do you feel is the difference between chanting uh, in this ancient, you know, language of the gods, the Sanskrit language versus like in English or in another type of language? I don't, you know, Russian or <laughs> something. Well, I can't really, I can't really speak for um, another language, actually. But um, <clears throat> the what I've come to understand from you know, I've from reading in different um, areas from the Vedas um, and the Upanishads included in that, um, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. Um, texts by Shankaracharya like uh, Yogatarabali. Uh, the more I read, the more I realize they're talking about the same thing and, and none of these texts contradict each other. So there is some kind of, um, there's no contradiction. I mean, you, can, you can argue about the, um, you know, about how it's presented which is really what's going on with the different darshanas, but it all really is pointing to the same thing. And so the idea is that in everything that's from that arises from the Vedas and all these different texts, you know, their source is the material in the Vedas is, is truth or, or sat. So um, there seems to be some kind of um, ultimate truth in all of that, that, that is there, right? So, um, when, if I chant in my own language in English, if I, if I create something myself, I'm likely to find maybe a couple of years later that I don't really agree with it anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's not kind of an absolute thing, whereas these these mantras have been tested and refined, or they've been this, this they're said to have been revealed to rishis in the highest states of meditation. So, in those states of meditation, when these mantras are revealed, whatever that means, their mind is in a very pure and sattvic state, and therefore what comes out will have that nature. I don't think my mind is sattvic enough to produce that kind of um, outcome. So, but by chanting, I'm hopefully creating more sattva uh, in my own mind, you know, in my own insides. Mm -hmm. Maybe like for Elise, you know, maybe that... <laughs> You, you find you find maybe he was in a sattvic beta, but was in a sattvic enough state. Um, definitely, <laughs> Bach. You, now Bach was Bach was definitely very sattvic. He's amazing. 
Nita Simone is is nothing but the highest regard for Bach for all for all composers. Um, but I I wonder if if also uh, bes- besides this very interesting point that you're making, uh, if also like major or minor scales um, that you that you were using in 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 Australia are are they using a different scale progression in music in India that that is also uh, more attractive for you? Or is that even something appropriate to say about chanting? Well, the chanting that I do is actually Vedic chanting and it only has three tones. Um, So, but I think what you're talking about is the ragas that they use in classical um, Indian music. the whole the same thing holds true. I mean, the whole basis for that for the I, I shouldn't talk too much about this because I don't know a lot about it. But I, I believe that the whole basis for all of those they would call it a science is also um, the same. So there is some sort of purity in that as well, which is I mean, it's the the source is the same source for their music and their dance is an expression of the same thing and it's highly highly refined over over many centuries um but uh, i mean i really don't know enough to be to be talking about <laughs> i find about it interesting things. um like this idea i mean through the asana in we're trying to create uh, purity or sattva through you know cleansing our physical body cleansing our our subtle body uh, through pranayama, again, we're trying to, you know, cleanse maybe at a deeper level through our subtle energy channels. Um, and then chanting also has this element, as you just mentioned, about uh, creating sattva and, and purifying our, our subtle bodies. Is that your experience? Um. When I first started chanting, it made me feel sick. Oh wow! I if I chanted for a, if I chanted for a long time, I would feel nauseous. Um, and at the time, I was I wondered about that. I was wondering. I, I think my chanting teacher actually mentioned something about it, very you know, purifying or whatever. But I felt that it was reorganizing some things internally, and uh, if I chanted for an hour, I would. I would feel nauseous and that went away. It's um, after some time of chanting. Now I've, you know, this whole thing with yamas and niyamas, when I first started reading about the yamas and niyamas and paying attention to them, um, trying to follow the yamas and niyamas, we all know that's, that's difficult. Um, I, my perception of, of them, you know, ahimsa, non-violence, satya, truth, aste, non-stealing, and brahmacharya, appropriate relationships, non-grasping, all of this stuff seemed to make sense, but it felt like it was kind of having to follow rules um, for people around me. It was more about more about those people externally. And then I, what I realized or what I understood later is that Yamas and niyamas, their only purpose is for purifying our own minds. And so it's 
in a way it's kind of we can say it's a little bit selfish um but we have this tendency you know as as humans that we want to fix other people's problems that kind of thing so but we don't think about our own so this practicing the yamas and niyamas is ex- extremely important for creating an internal dharma i'd call it where things start functioning in a in the right way things start flowing smoothly um i always give to my students i always give that quote from mark twain he said if you never tell a lie you never have to remember anything <laughs> so this is this is my my go to um quote for for satya so if you don't if you follow satya if you tell the truth then your mind remains much clearer because you're not walking around trying to remember all the lies you told and trying to kind of um juggle situations you just have to remember what happened so it's then that's in a way that brings more sattva into your mind right so when you practice asana at the same time when you're focusing on creating a, a dharma inside your body uh, where the, where everything's aligned everything's flowing probably probably you're creating more sattva so when you're doing pranayama same thing and all these things together and then you add chanting it's a, a vibrational practice then you have all these different things working together so i, I i've been trying to practice yamas and niyamas i've been trying to practice asana i've been trying to practice pranayama <laughs> you know for all these years uh, the reason i say trying is because we we practice these things but um my my feeling about it is asana is not doing the asana it's it's um creating the state of asana um doing pranayama is not sitting and doing breathing techniques it's creating the state of pranayama so what happens internally so we can say that the same for yamas and niyamas so satya you can tell the truth all the time but unless you're in the state where that just is happening by itself then it's not really yama so ultimately my point is um i've been trying to practice all these things i've been trying to bring about that state in all these different areas of yoga practice and mantra is just one of them so it's hard to separate you know and say okay this one did this this one created more sattva but i think overall they all have the capacity to increase sattva and basically sattva is just bringing the more clarity to the mind so that um there's less avidya less misunderstanding um and more opportunity to start to see that uh, viveka kyati that, that potentially talks about Shirat loves to chant that sutra that one sutra one of the sutras that mentions viveka kyati that um the by one following right the limbs the eight limbs yeah <laughs> yeah so by following the limbs of yoga um the removal of impurities happens and then the, the dwindling of impurities and then you you get the light of knowledge resulting in this viveka kyati which is the the um experiential understanding of the difference between soul and nature you know so that's the sat- that's the potential of a sattvic mind 
that's that's really fascinating because I I get so frustrated with myself for because I feel like I just I lie so continuously um all <laughs> the time exaggerate and it's, it's just a continuous torrent of lies and and I and I'm sort of thinking now that what it keeps coming down to is this urgency inside of myself to try and please someone by giving them the thing they want, which is, you know, they want this, this untruth, I think. So I'll, I'll give them this and that'll make a nice impression on them and they'll, they'll feel happy. And it's, it's so ass backwards from what you're doing. (laughs) Which is to giving people the truth so as to make them happy. And um, I, I, it's really frustrating. (laughs) The idea is not to make anyone happy. Actually, yeah, right. The <laughs> idea is only I can't, I can't, I can't make anybody happy until I, I know who I am. You know, I can try. This is where we all get messed up. This is where the world is is getting messed up because we're all trying to have some get some outcome that we think is the right outcome, but because of our confusion, we don't really know what the right outcome is. <laughs> so we're trying to get something. We're trying to, you know, if somebody gives you um, a task to do and you don't really understand what you're supposed to do, it's very difficult to do it, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So I had a, I worked for a builder when I was um, about 16 and he had a very thick Italian accent, was in Australia and he would tell me to do something and I had no idea what he said and I'd ask him to repeat it three times and then I could see him getting more and more angry. He was very, um, he was a very kind of like, angry guy always stressed and so finally <laughs> he, finally i would just do what i thought he did and then he'd come back three hours later and say i didn't tell you to dig an effing hole there i said dig it over there <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> something like that yeah. so that's kind of like that's kind of what we're doing in our lives all the time when we're trying to um you know we're, we're trying to get some outcome yeah. without having internal clarity and so for me, the process of yoga is really about being more and more quiet and just paying attention. Actually, sometimes uh, I'm teaching and I'm in the yoga class and I think I haven't said anything for two hours. I should really yeah. say something. You know, should I say something? Um, <laughs> I, I give some adjustments, but I'm just observing, you know, a lot of the time. And uh, there's this thing inside you that says, no, you should, because people really want to you that's going to please them that's going to make them feel happy if you give them an adjustment and then inside i'm thinking but they don't need an adjustment mm-hmm. um you know or uh let let them just let them be um you know so uh, that it's interesting actually because i um you mentioned something about tolerance you know i was thinking about uh what is it to tolerate um, this this really right. follows follows the same kind of um, reasoning is that if we think about or if I think about what is it when I want when I need to tolerate somebody, it indicates that there's something deeper than me. My need to tolerate them is that I have some aversion to them or to what they're doing, and so I'm saying, okay, I'm tolerant. So we say I'm tolerant as um, as a, as a good quality, but it actually really indicates that we have 
aversion or dwesha, potentially calls it dwesha. It's one of the kleshas. It's one of these forms of avidya, wrong knowing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, later on he talks about vitarkas. He talks about um, when you're trying to practice um, yamas and niyamas, you'll be bothered by these thoughts, these opposite thoughts that will come. You know, and instead of um, just trying to practice the yamas, you have to investigate really deeply what are these, we call them vitarakas, what are these thoughts? What's this thought inside me that's, that why am I, why am I wanting to tolerate? Um, yeah. And when I analyze that, then I start to fi- I see, oh, that's dwesha, that's aversion to what they're doing. When I end up, when I analyze that duation, why am I? Why do I have that aversion to what they're doing? You know, what is it about them? And then you keep going deeper, and you realize that everything that you experience is inside your own mind. So when you're tolerating something, it's really about tolerating yourself. <laughs> so yeah. it, you know, it goes, it comes back to you, and it's got nothing to do with that person outside. Having to tolerate anything, you know, any situation, it comes from within ourselves right mm-hmm. and it's about it's about relationship and one thing that someone uh, said to me one of my students was talking about krishnamurti he said that god is what exists in all relationship god that's where god is he's in the relationship um and the relationship is between those two um souls so, but what comes between is this kind of mistaking, mistaken, is mistaken identity stuff that goes on. So, depending on our karmas, depending on our previous experience, it'll be we'll have compl- very different relationships with different um, people. Ultimately, when we all have become purely sattvic and enlightened, then there'll be no. Um, there'll be none of that between any of us, mm-hmm. right? So that's why um, I guess my point is that we we're, we're, should always be looking inwards. Of course, there are situations where it's you just need to change your situation so you can even have the mind space to be able to go through that process. Um, and some situations will be more supportive than others. And yeah. there'll be... That's what the the sutras talk about. Where the um, the Upanishads talk about when they talk about a, a good place to do yoga practice that should be clean, well lit, and away from traffic and indoors. It's because it's not that you can't do it in the middle of the freeway. It's just that it's much harder. It's so not it advances you to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then if you, uh, and then once you've you know got to a certain state, then you go and stand. In, in amongst the five fires, um, one above and th- or three, is it three or four? I can't remember. Um, I think one fire would be enough, but go ahead. <laughs> that's what tapas, actually, that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, the way that tapas is described is standing with fires around you and in under the sun as well. So there are these four or five fires. <laughs> that's interesting that I guess that's where sometimes tapas gets described as um, I think learning to uh, 
I'm not going to say this exactly correctly, but like sit with uh, pain or sit with um, adversity, right? Like learning to uh, persevere through it maybe or be with it, tolerate. Toughness is any kind of austerity that needs to be performed or done. Yeah. And so that can be self-imposed or it can just be, um, you know, situation. And, and then just back to Russell, Russell's point, Krishna, you know, Krishna talks about being born into a wealthy family. A good yogi would be born into a wealthy family and a learned family so that their studies will be in the next life will be fruitful. Um, so there is something to, to being in a situation that's, that's supportive for everybody. And if you have a bunch of kids in your class who are, you know, trust fund hippies, then it's good to prefer them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Completely. And I can see that happening in Mysore as well. And I, that all makes sense now. <laughs> I have, I have a question about tapas, which I think is, I'm, I'm curious because personally I find um, your interest and, and I guess passion is maybe I don't know if that's the right word, but dedication, devotion to the to this practice of chanting, um, just so interesting because it's I think it's quite unique that someone is drawn so deeply into uh, the chanting of the mantras and doing the puja um, daily. And do you do you ever feel like heat rising? Do you feel like the actual physical uh, sensation of heat in internal heat? Um, it's not, it's not like heat, uh, something else. Very dry harmony. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, but there's definitely, um, especially when you do a lot of chanting, there's definitely a, a sort of change in the body. I mean, just physically, if you're, when you're one thing that I noticed actually, when after chanting for some time, maybe a couple of years, I can't remember, was that my sinuses and my head became very clear and started to resonate a lot more. Um, so the nose and the um, cheekbones and the forehead bones, and they they start to resonate. And it's I think um, at the same time I was doing pranayama, a lot of pranayama and asana, it's like everything – all those areas I think probably get clogged, especially the sinuses over time. And actually the heat that you produce in asana, the, the pranayama, the chanting, that the vibration loosens everything. And there was a period where a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, stuff was coming out, you know, uh, blowing my nose a lot after pranayama and after some time it all became clear and then the body starts to vibrate. So the chest, the ribcage, the diaphragm, everything starts to vibrate. So there's even if I don't, you can't, I can't say whether it's just the physical result of that vibration, but it's like a loosening. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. A loosening of the, of the body. And um, there's, and then while sitting, this actually is more in a after, after while doing meditation that you can just sometimes feel the spine sort of automatically straightens and lifts by itself without any effort. So 
um, that seems to be, and I think what my experience tells me about that is that it's a, a complete relaxing of some part of the nervous system, but at the same time maintaining that alignment, it causes this lengthening and lifting up. Um, so... Would you say that that's like the state of the asana then, right? Like the stira, this this stable yeah. steadiness, but then also the sukha, the, the relaxation or the, the ease of... Definitely. Loosening yeah. the nervous system. And it, and it feels that um, that's that feeling of expansion. Yeah, the feeling of expansion, yeah. I think, is that anantya, that idea, that feeling of really yeah. like getting very big expanding it feels like your body becomes very large you know um and i i don't know i'm sure i probably stayed exactly the same size but um (laughs) nobody nobody mentioned anything Um, (laughs) why 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 did you why did you start doing asana in the first place that's such a, a funny place to be and were you you were in you were in school in Adelaide and yeah I was in school in Adelaide. Actually, I felt um, I I'd been studying classical guitar at the university. I'd been playing for a long time, and I had some back issues. I always used to get um, back spasms every now and then since I was probably a teenager, and sometimes a neck spasm when I was studying. And you know, you can't move your neck for a few days. I was only in my twenties. It's crazy, mm-hmm. but. Um, I always thought I really have to do something, you know, and for some reason I just thought I have to do yoga, even though I didn't know anything about yoga. I thought, oh, yeah, I should be doing yoga. So it was like yeah. it was like a, a word that seemed to make sense in my mind. Yeah. Yoga. <laughs> you were so, you were definitely around a lot of a, a lot of hippies then. In the, in no, I wasn't. I was, I was around. The people I was around were more kind of um, – they called themselves mods. I wasn't. Oh, that was, yeah. They used to ride scooters and yeah, big, big green jackets with targets how, on the back and stuff. How fucking old are you? Are you like, you, <laughs> Jesus, not that. I wasn't. It wasn't the first. <laughs> you were like in the quadrophenia. Were you? you know? Wasn't sixties. <laughs> In the eighties. <laughs> yeah, an eighties version of the Who. Okay, all right. Yeah. Mm. But so I, I was for some reason drawn to yoga it's interesting actually because adelaide um is a a fairly small you know city about a million it's fairly quiet city and but um we have uh so darby is from adelaide mark darby right oh yeah and so is eileen hall oh yeah oh she is wow oh i didn't realize So so is david roche has been there you know for probably 30 40 years um and also um what's his name that guy that started shadow yoga oh uh, Sh- so Sham something shandor ramate yes, so shandor there's a lot of big yogis from adelaide um and young blood roche and young blood's <laughs> there now yeah yeah you you were an immunologist for some time mm. uh after guitar before yoga uh, no, before 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 guitar and um, yeah, 
That was before yoga. Straight out of high, straight out of high school, I before went guitar. To, went to Adelaide University and did a, a degree in uh, immunology, and then I started a PhD in immunology, which I deferred and went to back to music, study music. Oh my goodness! And I so didn't finish worked, my PhD there. You never worked as an immunologist then. I worked for a couple of years in between before I started my PhD. I worked uh, as a research assistant. Um, just to, in, yeah. in, any any advice? You know what I've. I think. I mean, I don't know if it's yeah, for my own experiences. All the very basic things that um, principles in Ayurveda seem to be really helpful, such as going to bed at the right time and getting up at the right time. Um, for me, anyway, mm-hmm. simple, What's the right simple time? things. Well, um, to get up, you should get up a couple of hours before the sun, one or two hours before the sun, Ugh. and you should get seven or eight hours sleep. Um, <clears throat> and, it's like uh, the clock here is like getting up two hours before the sun comes up. That's right, but that seems to make a huge difference to me. And I was just in Adelaide, and I kept teaching. While I was there, I had to go back for family reasons. I had kept teaching, so that meant I was teaching my Zoom classes from – I'd start at 10.30 p.m. I'd finish at 2.30 a.m. Oh. And although my although my although I kept my um, schedule exactly the same for the whole six weeks, I felt um, – it, it it made me feel very bad. Like every day when I got up, I felt bad. Waking up that many hours after the sun had got up, I felt heavy, lethargic. Normally, when I wake up at uh, around three thirty every day, just as I feel really good, I feel really clear, and um, it's easy. You know, it's it's a habit. But mm-hmm. even though I had that regular schedule in Adelaide, I just couldn't didn't feel good and I was wondering why I was thinking it must be just the the biorhythms or the natural rhythms we should be waking up you know naturally before the sun comes up like that well and you were basically working a night shift yeah but you know I thought <laughs> I thought well once I've done it for a week I'll get into the rhythm and I'll feel fine but I just never I never did so um Okay, I want to ask you one last question before we go, which is, like, what does your, like, morning routine look like? I think everyone would be very curious to know how you fit in all of your practices and teaching and being with your children and all of that. Right. So um, I get up before 3.30 and I have a chanting, a Skype class on chant. Um, chanting with my teacher in India, mm-hmm. which I do for half an hour. And then uh, practice. And so that chanting I will do um, in the early morning. And then I do like a pranayama meditation mm-hmm. sort of thing after that before teaching. And then in the evening I do another one of those um, meditation pranayama ritual and some chanting um and i do another i I chant with some other people so that's kind of a bit more random in the evenings Uh, but we're doing it we're doing it all on zoom now um 
Are you teaching so, chanting to other people? I teach. Oh, so before, before um, I teach my asana class at six thirty. At six a.m. or five to six, we I do a yoga sutras class five six mornings a week, mm-hmm. and we chant. Um, we're working our way through the sutras, and then we also um, we some days we we look at the meanings of the sutras. Other days we we're just chanting. And then in the evening, I teach a couple of Bhagavad Gita classes at 6.30, which is mainly chanting, learning to chant, and just giving the basic meanings and a little bit of philosophy. Um, But the morning one is six mornings a week, and that's really good to do every every morning. I can certainly imagine that some of our listeners will will want to, to reach out to you to... Uh, to chat with you is there is there a way that they can do that they can um i guess probably the best way is can i give you guys my email address yeah um, email. Sure. link it in the uh mm-hmm. yeah for sure yeah. instagram website all the all the ways <laughs> okay um yeah we'd love to have more people i have you know a group of about 30 people on in the mornings and we, it's a webinar um and even though we've already gone through most, well, we started chapter three chanting, but it's the yoga sutras is something that, you know, if people haven't done it before, it's good to start anywhere and just, yeah. that's right. you know, it's something that you, that you learn over a long period of time. And um, I'll be going back and doing another one. It's taken almost a year actually to do this. It'll take a whole year to do the full um, four putters of the yoga sutras. And uh, I'll do that again. I'll start again once we finish this one at some stage next year, probably. And so, what's your yeah, what's so, the best way to contact you? So then, Andrew Hillam one zero zero eight at gmail dot com. Okay. That was. I, I just want to really want to thank you for coming on the show, and and we'd love to have you back on the show again because there was some. There was just really profound material that you went through, and I feel like there's a, probably a vast reservoir of other things that we could touch on, and, I, and I'd, I'd hope you'd come back. Yeah, it was great. Thank you guys so much. Really enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to when we can see you in real life. That'd be again. so nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Whatever real life is. <laughs> yeah, with a new president. Fingers crossed. We'll have that quite soon. And when this is heard, people will already know the answer to that question. That's (laughs) true. Right. Okay. All the future listeners already know the answer. (laughs) Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Thanks, you guys. See you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking